Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to all of you. Just uh, what a wonderful time of praising our great God. I mean, uh, words fail to describe how holy he is, how good he is, and um, what a joy to worship him together. A couple of announcements. We have a meeting next week taking place after the service, so that's just a quarterly meeting we do. We're going to be discussing the upcoming camp in April at length. So if you're interested or have questions, that's the time to ask them. So after church next week, we'll have that meeting. Um, and also there is a roster uh, out in the foyer because, uh, well, it's roster season. So what we do is we sign up every six months to give people the opportunity to uh, be led by the spirit in how they serve. And then also to take a break if the Lord's leading them to do that. And uh, so take a look at that, be praying over it and may the Lord guide and lead you in serving him and one another. And I just want to thank you who are so faithful to serve in many areas uh, behind the scenes, cleaning, greeting. Um, yeah, there's so much that everyone is doing. So thank you for that. And uh, may the Lord continue to sustain and provide and guide us as we follow him together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your holiness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that no, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, that you are the most high God, the almighty, the creator of, of all things, and before whom all will come before you as judge. And we thank you that you are a righteous judge. You are good and glorious, that you've made yourself known to us, that you've come in the form of Jesus to save us from our sins, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide and lead us into all truth and how you help us day by day and how your grace is amazing. We just worship you, Lord, and praise you and ask that you be glorified in this time that we would draw near to you. We would have an understanding of your truth and apply it personally to our lives that you would just, Lord, uh, reveal yourself to us. Put in us a hunger and a thirst for you and for righteousness and that we'd walk in the way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. It wasn't until I came to Australia and started playing baseball that I began to realize how much slang is acquired and just used um, if you start playing at a young age. And uh, I played on the Rouse Hill Wildcats. I frequently had strange looks when I would say something about baseball, and they're like, what's that? And, and I needed to explain what I meant quite often. And I think it's like that with a lot of things. Um, people have explained a lot of rhyming slang to me and Australian slang. And um, to give you an idea of the scope of baseball slang, uh, a book that's considered by some to be the definitive work, it has 10,000 terms and it is over a thousand pages long. So it's quite a book about slang in baseball. And I bet there's a bunch of phrases I haven't heard of, but probably my favorite one that I would use was a line drive. Anyone here know what a line drive is? Paul does now. So there are lines on the field, but it has nothing to do with the chalk lines. It means that there's a, it's a batted ball that's hit parallel to the ground, like a clothesline. So a line drive is a hard hit flat ball that's parallel to the ground, also known as a liner, a line shot, or my favorite, a frozen rope. So that was a seed. That was a frozen rope. And everyone's like, what? Turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. All the books of the Bible, they're equally 
divinely inspired and important, but the book of Romans, it's really wonderful in that it's a revelation of God and really the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel. And we'll see in the book of Romans, there's a lot of words that can become almost Christian slang things that we say, and we may not even know what they mean when we say grace or justification or righteousness, what we mean by that. And as we go through this book, hopefully we'll be able to discuss those and actually get a better understanding of what they mean to us. Because if you don't understand the slang, you can understand everything else that's spoken, but you don't know how it impacts you. You wouldn't know justification from sanctification or a line drive from a routine fly ball, right? So we're going to introduce this book today. We're going to go through verse 17, God willing. Um, It's believed that Romans was written during Paul's third missionary journey as he was traveling towards Jerusalem around 57, 58 AD. Upon his return to Jerusalem, we know that he was arrested. He was carted off to Caesarea where he remained for two years before going to Rome in chains. And this letter, it's addressed to Jews and Gentiles, to Christians who were living in Rome. And it would be a while before he traveled there, but this letter would precede him being carried by Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. So this, this letter reached them before he did. And the basic flow of the book, uh, in this introduction, we see that there, there's an emphasis on God, God's grace, the gospel, faith, and we see these key themes established. And you wrote in this letter, moving on, that God's righteousness is revealed in his judgment of sin. His righteousness is revealed in justification by faith, by sanctification, and his righteousness is revealed by his sovereign choices. And the book, there's a shift in chapter 12 to God's righteousness revealed in people's lives. And then it closes in the final chapter with greetings and concluding remarks. And I pray that God would make this book so fresh fruitful and really transformational in our lives as we come before the Lord together. So starting in Romans one, verse one, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul starts, starts off by saying he's a bond servant or slave of Jesus Christ. That's doulos in the Greek. Slavery was very common in the ancient world. And he's saying that I, Jesus is my master, that he, he is my savior. Now, if you read in the book of Exodus chapter 21, it explained how people within the Jewish law became a bond servant and it was a willing slave based. It was a relationship based upon love, the love of a slave for their master. So in Israel, if you owed a debt that you couldn't pay, you would work for the person you owed for six years and then the debt would be paid regardless of what it was. And then you would go free the seventh year. But at the end of that time, if you decided you wanted to stay you could, dis- you could express your desire to be a bond servant. And if the master agreed to it, he didn't have to, but he could. If he agreed to it, then there was a legal process. We read about in Exodus 21 verse 5. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. 
He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. It was impossible to become a bond servant by yourself or on your own. You had to have a master and you had to love him and be willing to serve him. And then there was this agreement between the servant and the master that they would go before the elders or the judges of the city. And the master had to do the piercing. It wasn't like you could just pierce yourself and say, I'm a bond servant. The master had to pierce you. And so the servant was pierced. And like all people, Paul, he had a debt of sin. He could not pay because of Jesus Christ who was pierced on the cross for him. Paul loved him. Paul served him. He's like, he is my master. I'm a slave to him. And he was born again by faith in Jesus. So he's not talking himself up as a great man, as a bond servant, but who his master was, that he was submitted to him as a slave. He said also that he was called to be an apostle. It literally means one who is sent. Now the term apostle was first used by Jesus to distinguish the 12 disciples from all the others, the ones that he had called to follow him. The Bible also uses the, the term apostle or the calling of apostle in a broader sense. We see Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews 3.1. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Adronicus, and even Junia in Romans 16.7 are referred to as apostles. They had this calling. But the 12 would, would speak of those. So there's, there's a couple ways it's used. So he's a willing slave of Jesus. He's one who's sent by Jesus. And he's separated to the gospel of God. And it's interesting because he was once a Pharisee who separated himself from everything that defiled. But now he's a, he is a slave of God, of Jesus, who is separated to the gospel. To bring the good, good news of God's salvation to all people, to Jew, to Gentile alike. Before Jesus saved Paul, he was Saul and he was bad news. I mean, this guy was going around arresting people persecuting Christians, then he is born again through faith in Jesus. And he is separated to the gospel, sharing it to everyone that he met, giving that forgiveness and eternal life and loving relationship that's offered to all freely by God's grace. So he explains too, that the gospel is mentioned by the old Testament prophets. It's this new and living way that wasn't explained fully, but we see revealed through Jesus Christ. And twice here, we see Jesus is called God's son. So there's an emphasis on his divine eternal existence, but also that he was a human. We know he was human because he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. And we know that he's divine. He's God because he rose from the dead. Because it says right there, the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So that's how we can know Jesus is God is because he rose from the dead. And we also see all three persons of the Godhead mentioned here. As you can see, it's very loaded. There's a lot of information here. So hopefully it doesn't get bogged down or confusing. Uh, may the Lord help us understand this. Jesus is the son of God, which infers he has a father, the God, the father, Jesus Christ, the son, and the spirit of holiness, also called the spirit of Christ or the Holy spirit. So the one eternal self-existent God in three persons. We see that Jesus included the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to his great commission of the disciples in Matthew 28, 
19 and 20. So Jesus Christ, the name it's mentioned six times in the first eight verses. So those, both those words together, 34 times in the book of Romans, we see Jesus Christ mentioned. Sadly, the majority of times we hear the term Jesus Christ or the name is more as an expletive. It's not as talk. It's not speaking of a person, but Jesus Christ, it's not a first and a last name. Jesus is his name. And Christ is his title or a proclamation. He's making a point. Every time you read Jesus Christ, it's not just identifying a person, but it's saying proclaiming him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised by God who would save his people from their sins. So it's a proclamation. It's a declaration. Every time you say Jesus Christ, you're pointing to the Christ, the son of God. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, he told Thomas not to be unbelieving, but to believe not just that he rose from the dead, but that he was the son of God. He is the Christ in John 20 verse 28 and 29. It says, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't correct Thomas like, oh, you're, I'm not really God. No, my Lord, the Kurios, the supreme being, and also God. He truly is the Christ, the Lord and God. Paul continues in Romans one, verse five, through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Paul addresses this letter to all who are in Rome. This include all followers of Jesus, those who believe in him twice in this little section, he mentions grace and being called those go together. It's by God's grace that we are called. God's grace is foreign to this world and it's an attribute of God's character because he is gracious. We receive grace from God. That's favor that we don't deserve that he's inclined to be kind and merciful and compassion to us. And we have not earned that right, but he gives it to us freely from his grace. But that's not all that grace is. Grace is also power from God that helps us. We see that in two Corinthians nine, eight, it says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. And then also in Hebrews four sixteen, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So grace is God's favor that we could not earn extended to us freely. We see that it's power and help in time of need. And also it's good standing in God before God. That is by grace. We are saved through faith, not of ourselves. Romans five, two, it says that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have a good standing with God by his grace. So a simple definition it will include these three aspects. And this is just some of it really that it's undeserved favor from God. It is it's love that stoops. 
like royalty bending down to a subject. He doesn't have to acknowledge us, but he stoops to us. It's power and strength that helps us and it's good standing with him. We can't approach God in his glory, but he stoops. He, he notices us. He comes to us. He helps us and we have good standing by his grace. And I'm reminded of a parable Jesus told of the good Samaritan. It's really a good illustration of God's grace. In the story Jesus told, there was this Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves. He's beaten and robbed and he's left for dead. And there was a priest and a Levite that passed by one after another. And they saw the man lying and dying by the road. And they chose to pass by on the other side. And a Samaritan happened by. And the, and as the Samaritan woman said at the well, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And she was shocked that Jesus being a Jew would even speak to her because the Jews hated the Samaritans. They distanced themselves from them. They would go around Samaria to avoid being or being with them. They couldn't stand them. And yet the Samaritan, the one who had been pushed aside, the one who was hated stopped, got off of his animal went to the person, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine, he put him on his own animal and he walked to find him accommodation and paid for him to be healed, to be nursed back to health. What the Samaritan did, it foreshadowed what Jesus would do in coming to earth, stooping down, showing compassion on us when we were dead in sins. And it's we who were in hate, we hated God. We were opposed to God. We were enemies of God. We were his sworn enemies on our end. And yet he had compassion on us and he has given us hope. He has given us the promise of eternal life so that we could be forgiven. He, and he gave his own life. He didn't just pay a, a few hundred dollars to save us. No, he shed his blood. He died so that we could live and be with him forever, that we could be called that we could be called children of God brought into his family that we could be declared righteous. I mean, it's so amazing what Jesus has done in being gracious. So Paul addressed the Romans to those called of Jesus Christ. Now in baseball, it's a big deal to be called up from the minor leagues to the major leagues. You can toil for a decade in the minor leagues and you have no notoriety you're basically scraping by paycheck to paycheck, traveling long distances. And then you get that call up where it's like, you've made the big squad. You're in the major leagues now. And you know, the thing about getting called up to replace someone, you can also get sent back down. And that's disappointing. It was a great honor as a kid when you're 11 years old and you have a grown up calling you because he's the manager of the team that picked you. And he says, congratulations, you made the team. I'm happy to play this season with you. And you're like, wow, it, it felt really nice to be called and to be chosen. And it's like, but to be called and chosen, what did you have to do? You had to apply. You had to pay for fees. You had to try out. You had to show how good you were and then you could make a team. But for us, we didn't pay an application fee. We didn't. We can't pay anything to God. And yet he's called us. He's called us. He's blessed us. And he's saying, you're mine now forever because I love you. And we've responded to that by his grace that we're beloved of God and called saints. Now notice 
in that verse that the to be in verse seven is italicized. It's added to the English. So it's not called to be a saint someday. We're called saints. He calls us saints because he has redeemed us. We have been forgiven. It's not, this calling is not due to our merit, our efforts, our deserving to be called, but because God is gracious and good and he calls everyone. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. We will find rest for our souls in him. That we can say, God, our father, because of what Jesus has done. We can call God father. And it's true because we're born again into his family. Let not this be lost on us. Let's celebrate and rejoice in Jesus and our father in heaven. Romans 1 verse 8. He begins the letter after the introduction. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul expresses his thanks to God for all those in Rome, the believers who would read this letter and that their faith was spoken of in the whole world. It was said that all roads lead to Rome. Uh, Rome was central to the Roman empire and it was connected to the other cities and regions by this vast network of roads that enabled troop movement and the movement of information to be spreading quite quickly throughout the towns and villages. News of the faith of Jesus had gone everywhere from Rome. And Paul, he wrote a lot of letters to churches he helped establish. Rome was not one of them. He had never been to Rome. He had a hand indirectly in some conversions of people that went to Rome. What will we read in Acts 2.10 on the day of Pentecost? There were some travelers and visitors from Rome in Jerusalem. When the Holy Spirit came upon the believers, they're speaking in tongues and they heard them speaking forth the praises of God. And it says that 3000 souls were added to the church that day. It follows that some of those 3000 being Romans were born again and brought the message of salvation back to Rome. So they heard people speaking in Latin or some Italian dialect, praising God for his wondrous works. At the end of Romans, we see Paul greets Aquila and Priscilla. He stayed with him in Corinth. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts 18, starting in verse one. If you like, it's just back a book. Acts 18, verse 1. This was his connection with Aquila and Priscilla. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. Aquila and Priscilla were residents of Rome. And the emperor Claudius demanded that all the Jews leave Rome. And so when they left, they happened to meet up in Corinth and they worked in the same trade. So they worked together. And we don't know 
if Aquila and Priscilla came to faith because of Paul's witness, I know they would have talked about Christ all the time. And he also reasoned in the synagogues and later uh, they worked together sewing tents and returned to Rome. And we see that they had a church plant in their house at the end of the book of Rome. He says, greet the church that is in their house. So they brought the message of the gospel from Corinth back to Rome and started a home church. And we see too, that they were used by God to instruct Apollos who didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. And he went and was spreading the gospel. And so people that were moving out, they were outside Rome. They came to Christ. They went to Rome and they started a church in Rome, a mix of Gentiles and Jews. So Paul thanked God for the church in Rome. He says, I'm always praying for you. And I'm always praying for an opportunity to visit you. I'd love to impart a spiritual gift to you. He'd love to preach the gospel there. He was on his way to Jerusalem at this point. He didn't know when he would go to Rome, how he would go, like how he would actually get there. It's quite far away from Jerusalem. He's heading in one direction. He's like, I really want to go to Rome, but the Lord had plans of how he would do that. Spurgeon's quoted in the enduring word commentary. He says, when our hearts are set on a thing and we pray for it, may God grant us the blessing, but it may be in a way that we never looked for. You shall go to Rome, Paul, but you shall go in chains. So he went on the, the Romans tab. They took him in chains to Rome, but it was God who sent him there. And he said he wanted to go so he could impart to them a spiritual gift to the end. They would be established. He didn't know when or how he'd make the journey. What God, what gift God would see fit to give through him. And let's take heart from this. If God puts something on your heart to do, to glorify him, pray to that end, pray to the end that he would open that door and make it possible that he would do it. He would give the opportunity to do the thing he's placed on your heart for his glory. And he will bring it to pass in his time. Prayer works, not that we can get our will with God, but aligns our hearts to his will. And we go, we we are willing to submit to him. So it's this act of faith. It's a discipline. It's choosing to submit ourselves before the Lord to say what you want, God, your timing, whatever gift have your way. I want to go. And so that's what he was praying. All spiritual gifts given by God, their value beyond gold by them. The church is built up and God is glorified. And I like that Paul wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm going to unleash this spiritual gift. God's given me to you. Like I'm going to let you have it with both barrels. No, he's like, I, I want to, um, see you established. I want to see you growing in faith. And I want to be encouraged by you. He wasn't just going to go to encourage them. He was going to receive encouragement and he was counting on it because he was going to meeting. He's going to be meeting with brothers and sisters in Christ. Cause he said that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me, the value of encouragement. It's something that can be really I mean, we can, we cannot understate how important it is to be encouraged, to receive encouragement. There's a lot in our experience that is troubling. It is disheartening. 
Paul, he heard of the faith of Romans. That's very encouraging. But what did he also hear? He heard about the divisions and the carnality of the church of Corinth. He heard about the legalistic foolishness of the Galatians. He heard about them too, but he was going to be encouraged in his time with the Romans because of their mutual faith, faith in Jesus. That's where he was drawing his encouragement from. Christian ministry, it encourages the giver and the receiver, the preacher and the hearer, the brother and sister talking together about the goodness of God. So Paul looked forward. He's like, I look forward to meeting you. Not that I can just bring you a gift and unload on you, but that I can be encouraged by you. And that's very encouraging to me. You know, I'm really encouraged when I speak to you guys. I'm encouraged by the things you say to me before and after the service or a text I might receive. And I love when we start a book of the Bible and you say, turn to this book. And everyone's like, mm, this is good. It's kind of like you're in the restaurant and imagine that when dessert comes by, it's all free and you have room for it. And, and it's being passed in front of you. And you're like, I want all of it. I'm thinking about the other people here. I'm not going to, you know, eat it all, but that's how you are about the word of God. There's a hunger and a desire to hear from God and to feed on his faithfulness, to grow and to learn. That is encouraging. That's so encouraging to me. And it ought to encourage you as well. And not just looking at other people with a smile on their face, but saying, you know, even in the sorrowful times, we have mutual faith in Christ. That encourages me that the Lord has drawn you here to this place, that you'd be watching online, that you'd be desiring to serve one another. That's encouraging. And we should not allow the discouragements to rob us of the encouragement that God gives us through one another. Because it's a matter of perspective. Are we going to allow those bad reports out of Corinth or Galatia to ruin or take the, the shine off of this mutual faith that we share in Christ? And that was Paul's perspective. He's like, I long to give you a gift, whatever gift God gives, but I long to be encouraged by you. He was a giver and a receiver. Now, this is the only time in Greek, the Greek words translated mutual, the mutual faith. The vast majority of times that word mutual is um, translated 74 other times. It is one another, the one another faith, the faith that cares about others, the faith that looks to serve and to minister, to love one another. So I thought that was really cool that like, it's the same word that we see love one another. It's one another faith, mutual faith, this oneness that we share in Christ that should be encouraging to us. And we should desire to see other people encouraged, even as we are picking up in Romans one, verse 13. Now I do not want you to be unaware brethren that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as it is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. It seems Paul on other occasions had planned to go to Rome. He just never managed to get there until this point. He was born a Jew and a Roman citizen. He could travel there, but it just hadn't 
been happened. He was thrilled at the idea. He longed to visit that church, but he didn't lament that he had never been because God had spread his word. God had established the church. And he's like, I look forward to being encouraged by fellowship with you in person. We know that in the two years, Paul was in Ephesus. All of Asia Minor heard the way of salvation. They all heard the gospel. So it's like God's word was not hindered because he was in one place. And God's word was not hindered because he wasn't in Rome. God's word had traveled to Rome. And now good news had come out of Rome of the faith of the people who were there. So it's like God didn't need Paul there on the ground. But Paul was encouraged by that mutual faith at a distance. And he loved to visit them. I love that Paul later in his life, when he was in chains in 2 Timothy 2, 8, 9, he said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Paul was in chains. But his word was not chained. His word was continuing to spread. It was going out by people who are not named Paul, by people you've never read about, by common, ordinary, everyday people like you and me who are not famous, who who are not perhaps put on a pedestal or even respected in the world. Through them, the gospel went to Rome and the church was established And through others, the good news of the gospel and the faith of those people there spread throughout the whole empire. He says the whole world's heard of what's happening there and the faith you have in Jesus. Take heart in that, that the good news we share, it's unchained. God will cause it to spread and God will cause it to transform our lives and bear spiritual fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. So Paul, he sees himself as a debtor. He saw himself as owing to teach the gospel, preach the gospel to Greeks, to foreigners, the educated, the unlearned, to all people. It wasn't like I need to go take the gospel to the most influential people, because if I can give the gospel to the most influential, well, then the word will spread. No, it was just to that person. He's, he's in that tent making business who comes with the delivery of skins and he gives the gospel to that guy. He gives the gospel to the women that are washing their clothes down in the river. He gives the gospel to the people in the synagogue that are hardened against the gospel, hardened against Jesus and the learned men and women who were um, philosophizing. He went and spoke to them as well about the gospel. He was giving it to everyone. Later we see him writing in this book, Romans 13, eight, Oh, no one, anything except to love one another for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law for God. So loved the world. He gave his only begotten son and sharing the gospel is the most loving thing we can do. If he would demonstrate his love by giving his life, we can show his love by sharing Christ. Paul said in verse 15, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he was ready. He was willing to go to Rome. He was not like people who answered Jesus call and said, Lord, yes, Lord, but let me first do what I want to do. Let me finish this list of chores that I have or things that I need to tick off my list. No, he's like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go right now. If God opens a way for me. 
Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For it, it, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we arrive at a key theme verse in the book of Romans that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. He's ready to preach the gospel in Rome or anyone who would hear it because he wasn't ashamed of it. Now, when we're ashamed of something, we try to keep it under wraps, don't we? If we have something we're ashamed of, we don't want to flaunt it or to show it to anyone. We'd rather keep it quiet. We don't speak freely about what embarrasses us. Maybe the only time we'll talk about what we're ashamed of is if we're dared to, right? Like when you're a kid, like truth or dare. Oh. Those who are ashamed of, let's say, their internet browsing habits, they will clear their history or go incognito. They're ashamed that anyone would know what they were looking at. If we're ashamed of an unflattering photo, we delete it. We go, do not show that to anyone. Do not post that to the gram. That's off limits. That's no good. And I was like, what are people ashamed of? It was probably a bit of a rabbit hole, but I was curious. And I think everyone had different things. I just read like 20 or 30 lists, like all in a list and like nobody has the same thing. It could be very personal. It could be just very general. So we're all ashamed of different things and it can be hard to take our serious issues seriously. We don't even want to think about them. We don't want to try to deal with them. They're too much for us. But if we prefer to keep quiet about the gospel of Christ, it suggests that we don't realize that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, what it is and what it does. If we knew that we would not be ashamed of it. It's like someone bragging about a four cylinder vehicle they have, and you've got a V 12 and, and they want to compare the power. Oh, my powertrain is super strong. You know, I can go zero to a hundred in this amount of time. And I go, oh, I just, you have this e enormously powerful vehicle and you don't want to divulge it because you don't want to brag. It's like, we have the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes this is something that we should go. Oh, you think that's cool? Check this out. End of story. You can't get better than this. You can't get more powerful than this. You can't get more amazing and good than this. So check this out. Not that we're boasting, not that we're proud. Paul didn't say, I'm proud of the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. He talked about it all the time because he, he was indebted to everyone to share it with them. He shared the gospel at a time where people were getting arrested and were being killed and were being persecuted for the gospel. He was not ashamed of it. He was sharing it with people because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This word for power in the Greek is dunamis, weist. I like what he said about it. He's a Greek scholar. He says, this power, it's natural ability, inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. The gospel is the inheritant, omnipotent, inherent, excuse me, omnipotent power of God operating in the salvation of a lost soul that accepts it, a force demonstrated not by argument, but by what it does. So he says the gospel is power, 
power by what it does. It's not just something you agree to that begins to work on your mind. It changes you. It saves you. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It was preached by Jesus and his disciples to Jews first and also to the Greeks. And it was clear to Peter through the conversion of Cornelius and those hearers that the Holy spirit was given to the Gentiles at well, and it blew their minds. They're like, wow, the gospel is really for everybody. It's for everyone to be saved. It's for everyone to know God and to be called of Jesus and to be able to call God father. This is for everyone. And it changed the world. It's changed us. Paul explained in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This was not a new concept or idea. We see this happening in Abram, Abraham and others in the scriptures that righteousness in this sense is God's declaration declaring sinners righteous, that they are now in right standing before him by grace through faith. Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2, 4. It says, behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. I believe this verse is quoted three times in the new Testament by the power of the gospel. We're saved by faith in Jesus and we live by faith in Jesus. It's by faith in Jesus. We live. We're cleansed of sin. We're made upright by his grace and we enjoy eternal life with him. And I think of Paul and what he observed wherever he went is he says, I'm a debtor to both Jews and Greeks. He's observing people who do not know God yet are, have all these religious pursuits, right? He's watching people bow down and offer sacrifices to idols. He's seeing people with charms and trinkets on them. People that are saying things, every house he walked by, you could see the idols that they trusted in. He saw his fellow Jews laboring under the law of Moses that could not save them. That the proud Pharisees were as ignorant of this new and living way to God as a s- ignorant slave in Corinth or Ephesus, that they don't know God. They're seeking God or something they think is God, but they don't know the way of salvation. And everywhere he looks, he is seeing these people. He knew the way of salvation. He knew the power of God through the gospel. And so he's like, I am ready. I am willing. And I'm looking forward to paying this debt. Now, when it comes to paying a debt, we can't pay. That can be a source of embarrassment. We've got this massive debt, financial debt, let's say. And it's just hanging over your head. And you know that paying just the interest, you cannot pay it off. You'll never be able to pay it off. But what about that moment when you have the cash in hand and you're like, here it is. It's paid. Is that a happy moment or a sad moment? Now it could be a sad moment because you realize in giving all this, I have these other things that I don't have money for. But what if you pay that debt and instead of guilt, instead of shame being the thing that's pushing you, you actually are enriched through paying it off. And that's what Paul was like. He's like, I am rejoicing to share the gospel with you and I'm a debtor to you. And I give to you not because I want to, you know, do my duty, but it's a joy. I am enriched. I am encouraged to share the power of God to salvation with you and you and you. And that can be us. 
because we have received the power of God and salvation. All who believe have received this. God wants to change our minds and to realize what the gospel is and what it does. John 1, 16 and 17, it says of Jesus and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God stoops to give the gospel by his grace. And he gives us grace upon grace, the power of salvation and righteousness by faith that we are called of Jesus. And we are also called saints. You know, by God's grace, he's satisfied with you and me. And you don't have to change one thing about you for him to love you. Isn't that awesome? We don't have to change, try to change one thing to make God loves us because he already does. And he has given grace upon grace. We're undeserving of such love and acceptance. Otherwise it wouldn't be the gospel. I look forward to going through this letter with you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your wisdom and thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for calling us. Thank you for calling us by name, for seeking us out, for giving us this power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And we thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted this gospel with us, that through us, other people will see the gospel. They will hear the gospel and they too can receive it. And we can all be encouraged together by that mutual faith in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, quicken us by your spirit, that you would encourage us by your grace and uh, help open our eyes to see how great you are and how amazing the gospel is in Jesus name. Amen.